Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. So in North Georgia, in the city of Augusta, near the border with uh, South Carolina, there's a business called Anytime Bail Bonding. Here's their sales pitch. If someone you know was arrested and charged with the crime, please contact Augusta Bail Bonds. Augusta Bail Bonding can help you get your loved one out of jail quickly. Apparently, it is a good slogan because... Augusta has done brisk business in the state of Georgia. According to The Washington Post, since its founding, the company has executed more than 200,000 bonds with a total liability of over $834 million. Now, it seems that one of the owners of Augusta Bail Bonding is a man named Scott Hall. Hall has reportedly done well for himself. And because of that, he knows a fair number of state muckety-mucks. He is also reportedly a relative of David Bossie, Donald Trump's 2016 deputy campaign chairman. And according, again, to The Washington Post, Mr. Hall became enthusiastic about Trump's rise in 2016. Hall boasted of attending the Trump campaign VIP watch party on election night in New York in 2016. So Scott Hall, well-connected in the state of Georgia and apparently a big Trump booster, but also not an elected official, not a political operative, a bail bondsman. And yet by November 20th of 2020, Scott Hall finds himself in a central role in the Georgia presidential election. Hall's name comes up in an email from the head of the state's Republican Party, David Schaefer, to Trump's 2020 campaign election day operations official, Robert Sinners. It says, quote, Scott Hall has been looking into the election on behalf of the president, on behalf of David Bossie. I know him. By December 3rd, bail bondsman Scott Hall was testifying to the Georgia State Senate as part of Rudy Giuliani's misguided efforts to convince legislators that there was widespread fraud in Georgia in the 2020 election. I, have, I got up this morning, okay, and cried, okay? I literally cried. I've got just as many friends on the Democratic side of the aisle as I do the Republican. And I feel like I've got Alabama and Auburn playing football. Alabama won by a nose. Auburn goes back and reviews the video, and they say, you didn't quite make it. And they're saying, you're just mad because you didn't lose or you, you, you lost. And I said, no, I think you're cheated. When in reality, in reality somebody paid the damn referee a million dollars to, in fact, call this game. Okay. Bail bondsman Scott Hall has become such an expert in this alleged fraud that former Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, one of the most absolutely unhinged voices in Trump's ear during that post-election period, Patrick Byrne starts referring to bail bondsman Scott Hall as our man in Georgia. So Scott Hall is in the big leagues at this point. And then on January 2nd, the day that Donald Trump calls Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to ask him to find nearly 12,000 votes, on that day, 
Bail bondsman Scott Hall allegedly spends about an hour on the phone with Jeffrey Clark, the Justice Department official who's working furiously to tip the election to Trump. And on that day, reportedly after that call, Jeffrey Clark allegedly tries to persuade his bosses at the Justice Department to send a fraudulent letter to Georgia's governor, as well as the heads of the state house and Senate, claiming that the DOJ has serious concerns about Georgia's elections. So what did Scott Hall say to Jeffrey Clark? I would sure like to know. By January 7th, Scott Hall is chartering a jet to Coffee County, where he's seen on camera inside the election offices. There he is. That's all part of an effort to steal data from Georgia voting machines in order to prove that somehow the voting machines had been tampered with. Scott Hall later bragged about his role in that data breach in a phone call to the head of an election security advocacy group. Quote, I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect all those computers. How did Scott Hall, bail bondsman, end up becoming a self-appointed forensic expert on voting machines? Did someone put him up to it? Who paid for it? I mean, man, I would sure like to know. And on that front, it turns out we are all in luck as far as that information is concerned. Scott Hall was one of the 19 co-defendants indicted in Fonnie Willis's Fulton County conspiracy case. He was indicted on seven felony counts, most of them having to do with his role in the Coffee County voting machine heist. But given Scott Hall's role in a whole bunch of subplots to overturn the 2020 election, given all his unusual relationships and phone calls and activities, well, there's a whole lot more that bail bondsman Scott Hall might have insight into. And the news today, the very big news out of Fulton County that broke just a few hours ago, is that bail bondsman Scott Hall has accepted a plea deal with Fulton County prosecutors. He has pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts in exchange for his cooperation and his potential testimony against his fellow co-defendants. This feels like a big deal. Joining me now is Chris Timmons, a former prosecutor who has tried RICO cases in both DeKalb and Cobb County, Georgia, and Melissa Murray, an NYU law professor and co-author of the Trump indictments, the historic charging documents with commentary which is now available for pre-order. Thanks for joining me tonight. And Chris, I'd love to start with you first. Scott Hall is kind of like the zealot of uh, the efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, at least as the reporting would have it, connected to so many big actors in so many different plots. How damaging may he be to some of the co-defendants that are outlined in the that are named in the conspiracy case here? Uh, well, you remember, Alex, when we talked about the carpet that you start at the bottom and you roll your way up? <laughs> yes. You look at Scott Hall in the indictment. He's the, the number two from the bottom. Um, so as far as the 19 are concerned, he's one of the least culpable. But what's interesting is that, yes, he's got a lot of dirt. My, the way I take this and based on the way the misdemeanor uh, five count indictment re- or accusations on an indictment, but the charging instrument in this case reads he's his plea is all about Sidney Powell. Uh, you know, she's the person who's listed as the person that's the co-conspirator that he allegedly conspired with uh, 
to overturn the election. And so that's how I read this. Um, now, it'll be interesting to see, as, as you mentioned, there may be additional information on individuals that are also in the indictment or perhaps even in other cases. And so the uh, other interesting thing is that the DA's office indicated that they did a recorded statement with them even before the plea. And what that tells me is they liked what was in that statement, which is why they took the plea. So if he backs up later on and says that something happened that didn't happen or vice versa, they've got that recorded statement. They can use it at trial to impeach him. Yeah. Just to follow up on the carpet metaphor for a second, Chris, is the sure. idea here, as, as you point out, Sidney Powell and Scott Hall are named together in, in, in the, the charging document, and he could be a real big problem for her. Would he be the kind of leverage you need to eventually flip Sidney Powell? I mean, because ultimately you do want to get higher and higher into the upper echelons of the Trump campaign or White House, right? I mean, you want to go all the way to the top, Alex. Your yeah. goal, anytime you draft a RICO indictment with 19 people on it, your goal is to plead every single one of them. That's not going to happen here. I don't foresee Donald Trump entering a plea in any of his cases. With regard to Sidney Powell, though, it's sort of an interesting situation because she is an attorney. Um, I'm an attorney as well, and I, I probably uh, keep too much of my self-identity wrapped up in the fact that I am an attorney, and most attorneys do, and I'm sure she's the same way. If she pleads guilty to a felony, unlike, you know, uh, Scott pleading to misdemeanors. She pleads guilty to a felony. She doesn't get to be a lawyer anymore. She's done. Um, so I anticipate unless they make her a, a similar sweetheart deal that they made uh, to Hall, she's not going to plead. She's going to trial. And I don't think they're interested in making her a deal yet. We'll see. Um, you never know. I mean, it, you always are going to make a plea offer to somebody. But if it's anything other than a misdemeanor plea like uh, Mr. Hall got, she ain't, she's not going to be pleading. Yeah, I like the bit of self-awareness about attorneys being wrapped up in their identity as attorneys. Um, we are. <laughs> Melissa, the fact... Melissa may agree. <laughs> the, the, the fact that... Um, the fact that they're basically, as, as Melissa Redman, uh, uh, Georgia law professor and former deputy uh, DA in Fulton County, said, you'd have to assume that they that, that Scott Hall basically has the, the receipts because they're offering him first offender misdemeanors and he gets to go on about his life and keep his business, right? Does that indicate to you that like he must have something juicy for them to let him off with the charges he's pleading guilty to? No, I think that's exactly right, Alex. Um, and not just stuff that might be juicy with regard to Sidney Powell. He also had the 63-minute phone call with Jeffrey Clark. And I mean, Jeffrey Clark has a lot of liability in this indictment. Um, he is he is accused of sending a or almost sending a false letter to Georgia telling them that there was fraud in this election. I mean, so again, escalating this idea that there was fraud and election interference. So there are a lot of people who are potentially touched by Scott Hall and what he could say and what he has said. And that's kind of the point of this sprawling RICO indictment. Many people criticized D.A. Willis for having such a sprawling indictment. We later learned that there were actually 20 other individuals that she also could have charged but declined to do so. But who she decided to charge here really is telling. This is a low-level foot soldier, but someone who has the goods on those who are higher up in the chain of command. And those individuals in the chain of command, if they in turn flip, can get you even closer to the head of this alleged conspiracy. Yeah. Um, Chris, is it Rico? Is it sorry? Is it flipping season? Is that what this signals? Because <laughs> we know that prosecutors, I mean, they've signaled that they're going to make plea offers to Ken Chesbro, Chesbro. It's still so unclear to all of us. Um, and Sidney Powell before their trial starts on October 23rd. I know your feelings about Sidney Powell accepting a plea agreement, but Ken Chesbro, is that a possibility? And or, too. 
Yeah, another another attorney whose identity is wrapped up in his his job. But do I mean is this the is this the beginning? You know, the number was nineteen. Now it's eighteen co-defendants. Are we going to start to see that number tick down? Yeah, I mean, so their biggest value right now uh, of any of the other uh, people who are in the indictment is what evidence can they give against Chesborough? What evidence can they give against Powell? So it, it's kind of like evaluating when, when you're trying to figure out whether a, a plea offer coming from a defendant or, or a plea offer that you're making to a defendant is a good deal. You want to figure out, OK, what are they going to give me? And so you've got two cases pending and you're looking at it in two different ways. What are they going to give me against Powell? And what are they going to give me about and Chesborough and the, the case that's coming up on October 23rd? What can they give me in the bigger case that's coming second. So if they don't plead before the Powell and Chesborough case, obviously they can't provide testimony in that case. And so the value of their testimony goes down, which means the offer that you give them goes up, looking at more time, looking at worse charges. So yeah, it is flipping season. You're absolutely right. And it's it's got this time pressure because of these speedy trial demands, which is forcing those two trials to go to trial October 23rd. Those trials fall through. Then at that point, we've got more time. Yeah, October 23rd. October 1st is Sunday for everybody keeping track here. Melissa, also happening on Monday is the beginning of uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil case against Donald Trump. And we have some confirmation from NBC News this evening that Trump, as in Donald, will be showing up to trial on Monday. What could go wrong here, Melissa? Donald Trump testifying in a civil case. I mean, the last time Donald Trump gave testimony in a civil case under oath, it didn't go well for him. And that was in the civil trial for E. Jean Carroll's rape rape charges. Here, he's being asked to basically talk about whether or not the Trump properties were overinflated in terms of their value. And he's likely to say that valuation of properties is an incredibly subjective thing. People can sort of think about a wide range of factors and going into the valuation of a property and that what he did was not unlawful. It wasn't intentional on and on and on. He's also been called with members of his family as well. This is the damages portion of this trial. So the judge has already decided that there's liability here. And now we're proceeding to the damages part. It's a bench trial. So there's no jury here, just the judge. And again, Donald Trump is a loose cannon when sworn under oath. And so, again, the the testimony that he gives here under oath can be used in other places. And again, we may have situations where he is called upon and answers questions in ways that suggest that he's very typically overinflating, making hyperbolic statements, and that could possibly be used in other pieces of litigation that are also looming for him, including these criminal cases. Yeah, everything he says can and potentially will be used against him. Melissa, one more question as far as Trump's other legal peril. Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's overseeing the federal case into his attempts to subvert the 2020 election, has, again, news tonight, um, scheduled a hearing on October 16th relating to the gag order um, that the prosecution has sought, that the Department of Justice has sought, given what they allege are Trump's intimidating statements, both to jury pool prosecutors and witnesses. October 16th, though soon in some respects, is also far away, given all the things Trump has said in recent hours and days and weeks, um, and the, uh, you know, alacrity with which I think the Department of Justice would like to see the judge move on this. Do you read anything into her pushing this off for another two weeks to to make a decision on whether Trump will be subject to a gag order? 
Again, I think Judge Chutkin is a very good district court judge. She's very well respected. Um, she's deliberate. She's meticulous. She's also just come out of a request from Donald Trump to recuse herself in this case. And so I think she's probably mindful here that whatever she does is going to be cast in some kind of light by the Trump loyalists who are arguing that she has it in for him. So I think she's giving him a fair amount of time, both so that they can prepare for this hearing. We already know that Jack Smith has filed a response to Trump's response, and he's also also noted that in the just the days past, Donald Trump has made really inflammatory statements about Mark Milley. So again, this could be an opportunity for her to just simply allow the evidence to amass that a gag order is in fact the case, while also making it clear that she's giving this defendant the kind of room that he needs in order to defend himself and to make his claims in court. Well, we are going to see how all of this shakes out. October is the cruelest month, maybe. Chris Timmons and Melissa Murray, thank you for your expertise, your wisdom, your time on this Friday night. I appreciate it. We have lots more to get to this evening, including the lack of preparation for the crisis of historic flooding in New York City today and the lack of preparation for the political crisis unleashed by House Republicans. The ticking clock on the government shutdown and the ticking clock on Kevin McCarthy's speakership. That's next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today, the largest city in the United States, New York City and its surrounding metro area, was hit with a massive flash flooding event. In Brooklyn, a, a month's worth of rain fell in just three hours. Three. Buses and cars were submerged, as you can see in this video footage. Intense rain cascaded into subway stations, shutting down half of the subway system. JFK Airport in Queens reported its wettest day on record. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency, and she urged residents in low-lying parts of the city to brace for the worst. These types of weather events are typically known to happen every 100 years, but major biblical-grade floods are now happening with unusual and increasing frequency. Two years ago, flooding caused by Hurricane Ida killed over 50 people across the Northeast, including at least 11 people in New York City who died after drowning inside their basement apartments. Before that, in 2012, Superstorm Sandy took the lives of 72 people and caused tens of billions of dollars in damage. Here's the thing. 
As climate change warms the planet, Earth's atmosphere swells with more water, which in turn leads to more catastrophic events like these. Despite the growing frequency with which we have to deal with this, it appears that as a country, we are woefully unprepared. Our infrastructure is decaying. It was built in another time for another time. And the body best positioned to do something about this is barreling towards a government shutdown. Today, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy held a vote on his latest attempt to avert a shutdown. In an effort to placate Republican hardliners, that proposal included massive cuts to things like affordable housing subsidies and nutrition aid and cancer research and a lot more. It was, by all accounts, going to be a non-starter in the democratically controlled Senate, but that did not matter because Kevin McCarthy could not even cobble together enough Republican votes to pass that bill. 21 Republicans, most of them hardliners, voted against Speaker McCarthy's last-ditch plan. The Senate, for its part, has already passed a short-term spending deal that would allow Congress to avert a government shutdown, but Speaker McCarthy refuses to put that plan up for a vote over fears that he will anger far-right members of his own party, even though those members are actively plotting as I tell you this, to yank the speakership away from Kevin McCarthy. Congressman Matt Gates is threatening to force a vote to remove McCarthy as speaker as soon as next week. And Matt Gates can force that to happen because Kevin McCarthy gave Matt Gates that power when he was negotiating to become Speaker of the House. Axios is now reporting that Republican lawmakers are starting to make contingency plans about which member of Congress would replace McCarthy if he really does lose his speakership in the near future, like, say, Sunday. Among the names floated to replace him are people like House Majority Whip Tom Emmer and Homeland Security Committee Chair Mark Green. But it is not clear if any of those Republicans could get enough support to become speaker, let alone remain in the position long enough to corral Republicans into something resembling a functioning party. All of this means that a government shutdown is essentially a certainty at this point, and that will mean huge disruptions to America's infrastructure, its food and water safety, air travel, and, 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 and. At the exact time, when parts of this country are literally collapsing and underwater. America could use a functioning Congress right now, one that can deal with the emergencies of today instead of creating new ones to add on top of it all. But our Congress was built in another time, apparently for another time. We are going to get into what happens next to the GOP and to Kevin McCarthy and the rest of us coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You have watched me time and again. Have you ever known me to quit after one time if it doesn't succeed? I don't stop. I love that you come back every time and you ask the same style questions. There is going to be a moment in time that you're going to believe in us. There is going to be a moment in time that you're going to believe in us. Is there? Just a few hours after he said that, hardliners in Kevin McCarthy's own conference tanked a short-term spending bill to avoid what now appears to be inevitable, a government shutdown. Lawmakers plan to remain in Washington this weekend, presumably working on a compromise to keep the government running and reportedly on finding a replacement for Kevin McCarthy. Joining me now is Brendan Buck, former aide to Republican House Speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Um, Brendan, Kevin McCarthy apparently still believes in himself. Is he the only one at this point? Uh, yeah, he might be. Look, he doesn't have any cards to play at this point. I mean, you and I, I think, remember fondly the, or maybe not so fondly, the, the government shutdown in, in 2013, which I think is probably uh, the most parallel to what we have going on here. And at least back then, the House Republicans were willing to stick together and, and at least pass things that they could potentially send to the Senate, maybe play a little hot potato, send some messaging bills. Kevin McCarthy can't pass anything right now. He can't pass his own bill to, to fund the government. He can't amend anything that the Senate sends. So he's basically just sitting there hoping that the Senate gives him an exit ramp. Um, I, I think that there's a there's a path out of this for him. But it's going to require working with Democrats. And ultimately, that's the tough question he's going to have to answer. Is he willing to work with Democrats? Is he willing to risk a motion to vacate to do it? And we're going to find out in the next few days. Yeah, I, I wonder what you can tell me about that in terms of his general posture towards, I don't know, statesmanlike behavior to save a gov the government from shutting down would effectively mean, as I'm reading the tea leaves, the end of his speakership. Is he the kind of self-sacrificing politician that would do that? Every indicator we have thus far suggests otherwise. Well, if you're going to you know, tank your, your career and your job, you would hope that you would do it for more than a 30-day continuing resolution yes. to, to fund the government for you know, a few weeks. Um, now, look, I, I, I kind of dispute the idea that Kevin McCarthy's job is gone if he passes a short-term funding bill that requires Democrats to vote for it. Uh, I, think, I don't think Democrats would partner with the Freedom Caucus to take out Kevin McCarthy over the sin of funding the government for four weeks. I think most, most Republicans will stand by Kevin McCarthy. Now, it is not a small thing to have Democrats save a Republican speaker. That's obviously never happened, and that would be very difficult politics for Kevin McCarthy. Point being, I think Kevin McCarthy can survive this as speaker if he is willing to do something with Democrats. But let me just stress something. There is no way out of this without working with Democrats. The Democrats control the Senate. The president is a Democrat. You can't fund the government without working with Democrats. And yet you have some House Republicans who have set this standard 
that they will try to remove him for working with Democrats. They've set a standard he cannot meet. And so if you're him, you have to stand there and say, okay, this is coming one way or another. Either I'm going to be afraid of it and I'm going to be pushed into a government shutdown and let my party get beat over the head for a few weeks, or I'm just going to do it now. And I think it would be very wise for Kevin McCarthy to, to show some willingness to fund the government, working with Democrats. I think a lot of Republicans would vote for it, too. My gosh, we're just talking about extending funding for four or five weeks. I think he can survive that. I think he's going to have to do that eventually. And I think it's better to do it on his own terms, standing up tall rather than after a long shutdown. Well, let's be clear. He may be doing it on his own terms, but it will also be on the terms of the Democrats. And we're going to talk to a Democratic congressperson in just a few minutes. But they are very clear that their cooperation, assistance and you know, help in ha- helping Kevin McCarthy survive does not come without a price. So, I mean, the question is, what's Kevin McCarthy willing to deal? And and there, I think, is where the rubber meets the road, right? Brendan, do you think that at this point, being less than 48 hours away from a shutdown, there's been any outreach from the Speaker's office to Democratic leadership? Uh, I don't know, and I, I, I would doubt it. Look, the way this is likely to happen, this is going to come up really fast. There's probably not going to be a lot of warning. There's going to be a vote, and everybody's going to have to think quickly. I can't imagine Kevin McCarthy is going to offer up any 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 price. He's going to, I don't think he's going to pay a price for Democrats to do this. I think Democrats need to understand that whoever comes after Kevin McCarthy is going to be no better for them than Kevin McCarthy. You could be looking at a Speaker Jim Jordan or someone like that. Um, I, I think that it is... Uh, you only probably need five, six, seven, eight Democrats to stand with the rest of the Republicans, defeat the motion, and Kevin McCarthy is still in office. I, I can't imagine he, if, if he did start paying a price for it, if he did start negotiating, giving things away, that's when the conference may actually really turn on him. But right now, he has the support of 200 and something people. Maybe just not 218 Republicans. Yeah, and the numbers, they're a doozy, aren't they? Uh, Brendan Buck, who knows far more about the strange machinations of the grand old party than I do. Thank you, my friend, for joining me this Friday night. Yeah, of course. Still ahead, Kevin McCarthy. Maybe in a whole lot of trouble, but there is one group of lawmakers who can still save him, just like we talked about. One of them joins me next. We are less than 30 hours away from a potential government shutdown, which means at this moment, it sort of seems like a foregone conclusion. It's starting to look like the only way Speaker McCarthy might keep the U.S. government open and his job intact is with help from Democrats. But progressives in the caucus say that when it comes to McCarthy's speakership, there are some extremely strong feelings about not saving him. According to Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal, nobody should rely on us to save McCarthy. Joining me now is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, Deputy Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and member of the House Budget Committee. Congresswoman Omar, it's great to see you. I'm sorry that you have to be living through the chaos of this moment down in Washington, D.C. But can you can you give me some insight as to what the sort of democratic calculus is right now on Speaker McCarthy's um, survival as the as the Speaker of the House? Why is it that the progressives don't want to save him? And is that a sentiment shared more broadly in your caucus? Well, Alex, thank you so much for having me. This is a tragic tale of a weak, pathetic man uh, who, in order to achieve 
his wish of being a speaker had to make a deal with the devil. And we are not interested in saving this man from um, from himself and the devil that he made this deal with. Uh, it is true that he made all of these promises, including um, what is now risking his speakership. He brought this onto himself. And if he was somebody who had a backbone, who knew how to lead, who wasn't a known liar, uh, maybe some of us would consider what it means for the integrity uh, of his speakership uh, to try to stop this case. Chaos, but the reality is, this is the, the chaos their conference wanted. This is the chaos he was willing to create in order to become a speaker. And this is someone that is not only, has not only broken the promises he made to different members of his conference, but also made, also broke the last deal he made with the president and the Democrats. This is why we're looking at a shutdown. We agreed to top line funding uh, policies when we uh, passed the the bill to stop um, you know us from defaulting as a country and now he's refusing to uphold that deal and we are looking at a shutdown with less than 30 hours to go because they are interested in having a sham impeachment to distract from a twice indicted um, uh, twice impeached 91 time indicted um, criminal uh, former president who they want to obey uh, and distract from uh, his actions, the fact that he's facing both state and federal crimes. They also are very much interested in cutting necessary programs like SNAP and WIC, uh, ca cancer research, disaster relief assistance. We're seeing what's happening in New York right now. We're, we're seeing what is happening across the country, whether it's Hawaii and, and other places like Florida, to have this man not come to his senses, to choose to govern and not hold on to power um, is is really uh, scary, not just for us in the House who are entrusted to govern, but also every single American who relies on all of these federal programs and needs our country to function the way it should. Yeah. Um, and uh, listen, as a resident of New York City, uh, the 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 thick irony of the government about to shut down on a day when New York's infrastructure is breaking apart is uh, cannot be overstated. Let me ask you, though, about the suggestion from some Democrats that they might help Speaker McCarthy survive this if he would agree to a power sharing agreement. Is there any credibility to that as far as you know? I have not. I, I spent some time uh, the last couple of nights that we've been forced to stay up late uh, voting on unnecessary, toxic, really ridiculous um, uh, amendments, talking to some of the Democrats that people are thinking might help uh, save McCarthy from the disaster he's created for himself. Uh, but many of them say, unless there is uh, a 50-50 power sharing agreement where we get to chair 50 percent uh, of of the committees in in the House, uh, whether there is, you know, shared agreement on the kind of pieces of legislation we will pass both on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. They're not interested in saving uh, a speaker who has made it his mission to take autonomy away from women by banning abortion, who has uh, started the effort to cut social 
Social Security, who is so pathetic that he's willing to cut 80 percent from heat, heat assistance to so many people who rely, especially Minnesotans, knowing that winter is coming. This is a man who really doesn't care about his constituents, doesn't care about the American people. The only thing he cares about is satisfying Marjorie Taylor Greene and the crazies in his caucus and not about his constituents and the American people. And I don't think there is going to be a single Democrat unless this man makes an agreement that we know we can fulfill uh, to let us co-govern with him. Well, you know— <laughs> The unstinting criticism, the frankness of your assessment of Kevin McCarthy's weaknesses, I think, is a breath of fresh air for people who have been watching all of this unfold. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, I am sorry that you have to spend your weekend dealing with this. I am more sorry for your constituents and for the country. This is not what we need right now, but I am deeply appreciative of your time tonight. Thank you. Still ahead, how Senator Dianne Feinstein held the line against some of the worst impulses of the Republican Party all the way to the end. Just hours before she died last night, she cast her final vote in favor of averting a government shutdown. Former Senator Claire McCaskill discusses Senator Feinstein's legacy. That's next. Good evening. George Moscone, the, the mayor of San Francisco, was shot dead in his office in City Hall this morning. So was Harvey Milk, a city supervisor. Both shot, both murdered. In the total confusion after the shooting, the president of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, spoke. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Oh, Jesus Christ! On the morning of November 27, 1978, then-San Francisco City Supervisor Diane Feinstein told reporters she intended to quit political life. A bomb had been planted at her home. Her windows had been shot out, and she was ready to be done. Two hours later, she was checking her colleague Harvey Milk for a pulse. He and the mayor had been assassinated just a few feet away from her office in City Hall. Feinstein's ability to lead during that crisis thrust her back into politics and through what had previously been seen as an unbreakable glass ceiling. A week later, she became the first woman to serve as mayor of San Francisco. A little more than a decade later, she became the first woman elected senator from the state of California. In her freshman term, she led the passage of the most substantive national gun control legislation our country has ever had the 1994 assault weapons ban. And just last year, after more than 30 years in the Senate, she became the longest serving female senator in American history. Last night, Senator Feinstein passed away in her Washington home at the age of 90. She is survived by her daughter, her stepdaughters, seven grandchildren, and quite a legacy. Joining us now is former Senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill, who served with Senator Feinstein for more than a decade. Claire, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing some memories. I'd just love to know how you remember her as a colleague in the Senate. Well, I think you have to talk about Diane. First, you need to know when I came to the Senate, she was a towering figure. Uh, she was someone who had been such a role model for so many women across this country. Uh, because of the profile that she gathered in the Senate because of the work she did. So there was really two sides of Diane. There was the professional side and there was the personal side. 
Uh, I will say on the professional side, she surprised me because I think you assume when somebody's kind of famous when you come to the Senate that the staff did the work, that the staff was the one telling her uh, what to say and the questions to ask. And I will never forget the moment when I realized that she had it all in her head. She was hyper prepared. Uh, She was a taskmaster with her staff because she expected them to know as much as she did. And that was a tall order. She worked very hard at her job. And she was called a moderate. But I'm not sure that's really fair, Alex, because she had a very progressive voting record. But what she was was willing to work across the aisle. Mm. She was never one to say no to a negotiation. She knew that bipartisan compromise was the recipe for lasting change, not change that will just last until the next election, but change that would last for decades. In fact, she said to me once she regretted how that the gun reforms that she had worked so hard on were not more bipartisan. And that's why they went away after 10 years, because she was not able to get the bipartisan support for the assault weapons ban that she desperately wanted. Right. Through no fault of her own, of course, through the radicalization of of the Republican Party. Of Um, course. I, I, you know, you served with her when the CIA torture report was made public, and I think it was 2014. And Senator Feinstein really led the charge on that. Do you remember that chapter and the, the battles she effectively fought to make America's record on torture public consumption for the American public? I don't think anybody knows what a lonely road that was for Diane. You have to understand that um, for five years, her staff investigated. And this included, you may not remember, Alex, but this included realizing that the CIA had gone through the computers of the intelligence staff of the Senate. I mean, they not only had a dark chapter as it related to torture, they were treating the Senate staff as if they somehow were the enemy. And she stood up to them. She protected her staff. She defended her staff. And the moment she gave the speech that we're showing right now in December of 2014, the White House, the intelligence community were all pressuring her to stand down and be quiet. A lesser leader would have looked the other way and said, well, they'll never do it again, but not Diane. And I certainly urge everyone, especially if you have mixed emotions about her because she stayed as long as she did, watch that speech. And I think you will begin to understand the sense of obligation she felt. And that's what I kept think kept her in the Senate until the day of her death. Um, that's such a, an important point because, because there has been so much talk about the end of her career. It is so critical that we remember the majority of her career and these landmark sort of decisions she led the charge on. Um, she came into office in 1991, which was the year of the woman. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the unique camaraderie and bipartisanship among women in the Senate when you served, which she was, you know, one of the first. There was more of a quorum when you were there. Um, but things that get done often in, in Congress, if they get done, often get done by women because they're able to still forge some kind of bipartisan compromise or at least communication. Yes, she was a, a regular attendee at our women's dinners where no staff was allowed. And we were able to um, talk freely about what was driving us crazy about our male colleagues and, and problems that we might be having in our family. And, you know, I think it's important 
to say this about Diane. You know, I think it's easy in this day and age to just paint with a broad brush that people who serve in elected office aren't like us, that they are different somehow, that they, you know, don't have the same feelings and aren't the same, don't have the same humanity that, that most Americans have. And Diane was nice. She was just nice. Um, she had a sixth sense when there was a woman who was having an issue personally or with her family, and she would quietly reach out. She would send a thoughtful note. She would send a bottle of good California wine, or maybe what she would do with me, and I was so honored that she would ask. She'd grab me by the hand on the floor of the Senate. She'd go, Claire, let's go have a martini tonight and, and, and talk about the world. And I treasure those martinis we had. Um, we always only had one. And it usually took an hour and a half to two hours. But it was a, a terrific time for me to learn from her and for her to kind of show me that she cared so much more about her colleagues as people. No sharp elbows. She just worked hard and was kind to everyone, especially to her fellow women in the Senate. I love that memory, Claire. I want to take you out for a martini next time you're back in New York City. I need to hear about the Deal. world from your, from your eyes. Thank you so much. Former Senator Claire McClaskill, wonderful memories. Thanks for sharing them tonight. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.